neighbor. You are listening to the New Garden Church podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family, day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at www.newgarden.church/online. We would love to hear from you. This week, Jeff provided a message from the book of 2 Samuel on King David's treatment of a guy named Mephibosheth, who just happened to be the grandson of King Saul. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week 15 of our series, Long Story Short. Last week we had a special Easter edition where we look back and forward to get a big picture of the narrative. Today I want to zoom in on one chapter and the short story that it tells. That's what the majority of the Bible is. Story. The Bible doesn't do a lot of like bullet points and direct theology. Instead, it offers narrative glimpses of characters' actions that we can learn from and then see how it fits in the bigger picture. Now, if you are following along with the reading plan, we've been reading about the stories of King David. Today, we will read about the crown being passed to one of his sons, but I don't want to leave the story of David without looking at at least one story from his life. And I think it is especially meaningful to us as followers of Jesus. The story is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We've already read it this week, uh, and it's only 13 verses long. But instead of reading it like we normally do, today I want to tell the story as if you were the main character and hopefully let you imagine what it would be like to experience the fear and the pain and the grace and the love that we will see in this story. So imagine this is your story. Your name is Mephibosheth. You heard me correctly. Mephibosheth. It's not a common name. It never gets spelled correctly. Maybe you would rather people just call you Bo, uh, but it's not just the length of your name. It's also the meaning. You see, Mephibosheth means uh, one who scatters shame or breathes shame. Not really a name you would be proud of, right? But your name is not the worst part of your story. There was a tragic moment that happened when you were young. One moment that forever changed the course of your life. When you were a young boy, only five years old, uh, maybe you don't remember a lot from that time, but there is one day you will never forget. You will always remember a day when you were playing outside, you were just being a kid, and then you heard the pounding of hoof prints, and some of the men from the military came riding up on horseback to the estate where your family lived. You remember hearing voices crying out saying, The prince is dead! The king is dead! The Philistines are coming! And then someone close by yelling, grab the boy and run! That's when one of the female servants who usually took care of you came running out of the house after hearing the news and she scooped you up. She maybe paused long enough just to grab some cheese and some bread and put it in you know, a satchel and off you both ran with nothing else. And you remember running and running and running. And as a young boy, I mean, you were used to running around the fields and around the house, but that was for fun. And this was not fun. This was running for your life. And as you ran, you could hear the armies coming behind you. They couldn't have been more than a mile away. And you remember crying as you saw the smoke rise from some of the houses where you knew your friends lived. But you can't go back. You can't stop. All you can do is run. And so you ran. You remember running long enough and far enough 
that you seem to get some distance between you and the Philistine hordes, and as nightfall was coming, you came to some woods. You found a spot behind a large tree, maybe to try and get some rest, and yet it couldn't have been much later, because it was the middle of the night. You were woken up as you could hear them getting closer, and your servant helper uh, said, come on, get up, we need to go, we need to go, and so through the woods you ran. You remember getting scratched and stumbling because there's barely enough light to see the path and the trees in front of you. But you don't have a choice at a time like that. You just run. But what you do do, it, like what do you do when you can't run anymore? Your whole body hurts. Your legs were burning. I mean, you were only five years old. Your lungs felt like they were about to explode out of your chest. And so all you do is you could fall down and you just start crying. You don't know how you could keep going. And so your servant helper, she keeps yelling at you like, get up, get up, we need to run, we need to run. And you just yell back like, I can't, I can't. And so she picks you up and she carries you through the darkness, through the woods. A five-year-old is like small enough to carry for a while, but you can imagine that with each step, with each mile being traveled, you got heavier and heavier for her and her pace slowed down. You can see her eyes begin to kind of glaze over until she just fell. You don't remember if she tripped or you're not really sure what happened, but you remember the pain, the sound of something breaking in your ankles and your feet. Like she fell on top of you and you began to scream and you began to try to push, but she wouldn't roll over. Eventually you're able to like squirm out from underneath her, but she wasn't moving. You couldn't go anywhere. All you could do was just lay there and you cry, and eventually you fell asleep. The next memory you have is you wake up in the house of a man named Makir in a small town called Lodabar. It was across the river that you were hoping to cross in a neighboring province that you didn't think the Philistines would come and, and look for you there. You were told later that there were some fellow Israelites that stumbled upon you and your servant helper, and they carried you both. They put you on like a, a horse, or something, and brought you to Lodabar. And Makir, this guy's house uh, that you're, you're in, was gracious enough not only to let you recover, but let you live with him. And so that's where you grew up as a young boy. You grew up in his house. Eventually you married his daughter, and you had a son of your own. But it was a tumultuous time. Like, crazy things happened. But the craziest thing isn't that you're now crippled in both your legs. It's the matter of who you are. Because when the military men broke into your childhood and cried out, the prince is dead, that prince was your father, Jonathan. And when they said, the king is dead, that was your grandfather, Saul. Your life was forever ripped apart, torn away. Like you have fading memories of your father and memories of your grandfather, but again, they're distant and they're vague. Like low to bar is what you remember. You do remember some of the turmoil and the panic that ensued after all this took place. Lots of rumors were being spread. Conflicts were happening. You discovered that not only had your father been killed and your grandfather had been killed, but two of your uncles killed as well. And the only remaining uncle was Uncle Ishbosheth. Like you remember your father referring to him as Uncle Incompetent. And you don't want to say he was an idiot, but... The main thing was that he just lacked courage. He lacked the strength to lead our nation. But he was the only adult son of Saul, and so everyone looked to him. Now, thankfully, Abner, Saul's commander, the commander of his army, was still around. And Abner, oh man, he was 
He was an ox of a man. He was big and strong, fearless, a warrior, a leader. And from what you were told, he essentially ran the kingdom while Ishbosheth was kind of the figurehead of it all. But you were just a boy, and a crippled boy at that. Whatever course the kingdom was going to take, it was going to do it without you. You were pretty insignificant in the kingdom. But what was most significant is several years later, you remember being told that the kingdom had rallied around David, this king from Judah in the south. And honestly, you didn't know what to think about David. You know, like you'd heard mixed things about him growing up. You know, you'd heard your father and your grandfather talk about him and other people. Like on one hand, some people had told you that he was your father's best friend, that they were close. And yet at the same time, you heard stories about how, how he was on the run. He was trying to revolt and take over the kingdom, and you didn't know what to believe. Like There were rumors going around, and you'd hear a different story depending on who you talked to. Two different explanations of all that had taken place. The one explanation was that your grandfather, King Saul, had this insane fear of David, like an irrational obsession with him and just wanted him dead, and that David had to flee for his life. But others would say that Saul saw right through David, through the facade of David, and could see that David was conniving, was manipulative, and was trying to manipulate your father Jonathan, trying to orchestrate things so that David could take over as king one day. And you didn't know who to believe, right? Like, admittedly, when you heard that Ishbosheth had been assassinated, it made most sense that David was behind it. Like, that was one more step in his plan to take over the kingdom. So for years, you didn't think too highly of David. And so the safest thing to do was just to remain in obscurity, just to hide out and live your days under the radar. Like, it wasn't great. You couldn't make much money, but you figured out how to do some things with your hands. You helped Makir with some woodworking and some odds and ends around the house. And like, you did as much as you could do. And you fell in love with his daughter and you had a son of your own and like... You were as happy as you could expect in that day, until the day that Ziba showed up. Like, you barely recognized him. It had been so long. Ziba was the head servant in your household as a child. He oversaw the estates and all the servants kind of ran the household. And when he showed up and knocked on your door, your heart started beating faster. He knocked on your door, and two of David's guards were on either side of him, and he said that David wanted you to come to the palace. That same fear you felt as a child running through the woods suddenly grabbed your heart. But there was no running away now. Um, only questions running through your mind. Why would David want to see you? Like it was common practice in those days that when one king took over a, a, a new family, that every descendant of the previous king would be killed. Like why leave around a potential threat to the throne? Like, you just wanted to stay out of sight, out of mind, away from everything taking place in Jerusalem. But here was Ziba and David's men. Like, you tried to come up with some excuse about why you couldn't go, why you were needed in Lodabar. But they had a wagon ready to take you. So you went, you kissed your wife, kissed your son goodbye, you got in the wagon, and they brought you to Jerusalem. Now, you had heard rumors about Jerusalem. You had heard about some of the changes that David had made, that David had conquered Jerusalem and that he had made it his new capital city. You had heard that it was a fortress, but you were not prepared for what you saw. 
The walls of the city were thick and stone and breathtaking. The city gates were tall and metal, and the place looked like a fortress. It looked indestructible. And through the gates, you went up to the palace itself, which, again, you had never seen anything like it as a boy. Like, you remember memories of seeing where your grandfather, King Saul, lived, and it was nothing like this palace of David's. The ceilings were high, the walls were paneled with cedar, and there were beautiful, ornate designs, gold, silver trim, and they set you down in this kind of outer waiting room. And you don't know what's going to happen to your life. And then when some of the guards came and slowly ushered you into the king's presence. You hobbled up to the king, and you fell on your face. And he said, Mephibosheth. And the whole time your head is down, you're expecting one of the guards next to you to bring down his sword and just cut off your head and be done with you. And as you waited, nothing happened. And you look up, and you see David. And David says, don't be afraid. And he had a smile on his face, and he looked at you with this gleam in his eyes, like a tear, and he began to tell you the story of his friendship and your father's friendship. That when everyone else turned their back on David, your father didn't. The one person who should have rejected David when God had told David that he was going to be king, your father should have been the very one to push him away because your father was next in line. And in a perfect world, it would mean that you would be next in line after that. But Jonathan saw that God was at work in David. Jonathan could see David's heart, that there was this kindred spirit between them, and they became closest of friends. And when your grandfather, Saul, wanted David dead, it was Jonathan, your father, that would give him the news, that would tell him to watch out, that would warn him and protect him and provide shelter for him. Jonathan committed himself to David. He knew that God would follow through on his promise to make David the king. And apparently, your father had said, listen, no matter what, I'm going to support you. But David, when you become king, and when God gives you victory over all your enemies, including Saul, show mercy to my family. Don't let my descendants be killed. And David shared with you about how the time had come when God had given him the victory. And for the first time in the nation of Israel, as long as anyone could remember, there was this measure of peace and in that piece, David shared with you that he began to remember, to think back and remember that promise to Jonathan. And he said, who can I talk to? Is there anyone left in Saul's house? And sure enough, Ziba was summoned. And sure enough, Ziba had told David about you. All this time, you'd been hiding for fear of your life. And as now, as David began to share what he wanted to do for you, your knees start to shake. You couldn't believe your ears. David said he wanted to make good on his promise to Jonathan because Jonathan never backed down on his promises to David. And so David said he was going to take every property, every house, every bit of farmland that your grandfather King Saul had owned and give it to you. He took Ziba and his sons and his servants and he made them your servants, that they would oversee the land for you so that you would be taken care of for the rest of your life. In an instant, you went from the one who scatters shame, a name that unfortunately fits you pretty well over the years, and instantly you became one of the wealthiest men in all of Israel. Now, if you've forgotten, land is a big deal. Like That's what everybody has been talking about for hundreds of years. The people of Israel finally 
got into their land. And you remember reading through when Joshua divided the land up, they went into great detail about who gets what and where because it meant you were a part of the family. You had an inheritance. And now David has given you your part of the inheritance. Your place in the family is secure. And not only that, but David, he didn't just want to provide for you. Not only did he just want to make sure you were taken care of, he invited you to come and live in the palace with him to be like a son. He knew that he couldn't take your father's place, but he said he wanted to try. And you were welcomed with your family into the, pal into the palace and the rest of your days you ate at the king's table. You got to live with the king. You talked with the king on a regular basis. You lived like a prince for the rest of your days. What a wonderful story, right? But that's not our real story, right? Like we didn't live thousands of years ago. Like thankfully we don't have some strange name like Mephibosheth. We don't live at the time of the kings. We're not broken, estranged, in need of someone to save us. Or are we? Perhaps the story of Mephibosheth isn't just some heartwarming story from the Old Testament. Maybe it's our story because we are Mephibosheth. The story of every human is that we are broken, estranged from the king, not able to save ourselves, but we have been offered grace, not because of something we have done, but on account of someone else. Just as Mephibosheth received the grace of the king because of his father Jonathan, we received the grace of God because of King Jesus. In this story, David serves as a picture of God because he, he says, I want to show God's kindness. Now, it's the Hebrew word hesed, which is this word that combines the idea of love and loyalty and generosity. It's one of the most common descriptions of God in the Hebrew Bible. God's love is one that is steadfast and loyal and generous, which is the picture we see when David brings Mephibosheth into the palace. Mephibosheth is undeserving of this honor. He has done nothing, and yet he receives this grace from the king. He didn't have to clean himself up. He didn't have to fix his problems. He didn't have to explain where he had been all these years. All he does is fall on his face in front of the king and receive the gift, the gift that was provided by another I think this is what Paul had in mind when he wrote to the church at Philippi, and he said, What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God, on the basis of faith. Paul has nothing to bring and everything to gain because Jesus is a better Jonathan. Because of Jesus, we can receive the undeserved gift of God's grace poured out on our lives because he is a God of hesed, loyal, generous, and loving. But David isn't just giving Mephibosheth an acknowledgement that the king is going to let him live. No, he's going to let him live. Mephibosheth has been living in this no-man's land of Lodabar, which means without pasture. It's a place where life can't really even flourish. And David gives him back the land that belonged to his family. Land is a big deal at that time. Mephibosheth is back in the family of Israel. But Jesus is a better Jonathan because we now find ourselves back in the family of God. John writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. 
But the land also meant Mephibosheth was sharing in the inheritance of God's promise to Abraham that they would possess the land. But Jesus is a better Jonathan, and we share in the inheritance of his promise through Jesus. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And finally, Mephibosheth is invited to eat at the king's table, which is a point repeated over and over four times in the last seven verses. Like he already had land and provision, people to take care of him, but nothing beats eating at the king's table. You have the abundance of the best provisions, the best company to share it with, the safety of the palace, and the privilege of eating with the king. And Mephibosheth didn't have a one-time invitation. It was a perpetual opportunity. But we have Jesus, and Jesus is a better Jonathan because Jesus invites us to his table, and we join together at that table every week together. It's a table that is extended to all, regardless of who you are, what you look like, or where you come from. There are people at the table who at one time thought too much of themselves, and pride kept them from joining. There are people at the table who at one time thought they were too broken, and shame kept them from joining. But now, both take of the same bread and of the same cup. There are those at the table who have spent so much time with the king that they very much resemble him in their language and their way of life and the way they treat people. And there are those at the table who are experiencing this for the first time and they still look crippled and broken. But now both share the same bread and the same cup. I don't know where you find yourself today, but the truth is, is we are all Mephibosheth and we all come broken and unworthy, and through the blood of Jesus we have been covered and invited to receive a new inheritance, to be the children of God and eat eternally at the table. So today, as we take the bread and we take the cup, let us remember we are at the table with Jesus, who showed his loyal, steadfast, generous love by becoming as we are, so that we can become as he is. Let's share a meal with the King. That's it for this time. Thank you for checking in with us, and we'll be back with another episode next week.